So have you ever had a moment in life where you just wanted to scream, that's not fair? Ever had a moment like that? You know, kind of like it takes you 10 weeks to lose five pounds, but then 10 minutes at the donut shop, you can gain six. Is that just me? I'm pretty much thinking I've done that before, maybe. Or, or you know, your, your great uncle Briscoe, you know, y'all's thing is y'all play Legos together, you know, always played Legos. And then it's uncle, great uncle Briscoe's 100th birthday, so you buy him a box of Legos, and, and you're at the party, and he's opening up the Legos, and you look down at the box, and it says, no, for ages 4 to 99. Uncle Briscoe can't play Legos anymore. He's 100. That's not fair. That's not fair. Or you decide to make homemade lasagna for your family. Oh, I missed one. Oh, I missed my pictures. If you're listening to this on audio, nothing I'm saying right now makes sense. But I missed the Cookie Monster Donut. That was like my favorite picture ever. And Darth Vader, life-size in Legos. Uncle Briscoe made that. Man. Or you make homemade lasagna for your family, and it takes three hours to make this lasagna. And then they come to the table, and they scarf it down in three minutes. And then everybody goes back to their night of fort or to crushing candy or to, you know, being alarmed that this millionaire find their perfect, insane lakefront granny pod. You know, it's just like, oh, there's so many other things to go to. And you're stuck in the kitchen for three hours cleaning the dishes. And then you have three more weeks of cleaning before the lasagna sauce stain gets out of the Tupperware that you put the leftover lasagna in, right? I mean, it's just, that's not fair. It's just not fair. All of us have had moments in life where we stop and we just want to scream, that's that's just not fair. Helen Keller, when she was 19 months old, had an acute illness that left her blind and deaf for the rest of her life. She reportedly said this once, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight and no vision. See, sometimes when we're in that moment and we want to scream, that's not fair, that's not fair, what's really happening is we have sight, but we have no vision. We can't see what's really going on. We are blind to the reality of what's happening. So what does that look like in real life? Well, one day Jesus was talking to a crowd of people, and he was telling this crowd a story, and the story was about a son, and the son went to his father, and he demanded his inheritance money early. And the father was gracious. He gave him the money. And the son took the money, and he took off for a far land, and he lived it up, just a wild, extravagant, immoral life. But it didn't last long. He was so wild, so foolish, that he blew through all of his inheritance money. I mean, he blew through a, enough money to kind of last you a lifetime. So he's broke, he's desperate, he's stuck. He only has one option. He's got to go home. He's got to go Home? Home? Home was the place that he embarrassed his father. He embarrassed his family. He embarrassed the whole community. So going home meant that he was going to be shamed. He was going to be embarrassed. 
culturally speaking, that there might be an angry mob that would come to find him, and, and they might even try to stone him to death. So going home was not a safe choice, but it was his only choice. So he went home. And he crested the hill outside of the gates of the city, and as he did, he noticed that someone was running toward him, full speed. He probably thought at first it was, you know, one of the the first angry mob folks. They were coming to get him. But then as the person got closer, he saw the unmistakable smile of his father. His father, the one he had dishonored, the one he had technically disowned with his attitude. His father came running to meet him, running to welcome him home. With joy, he, he wrapped him up in a hug. He celebrated his son's return. And then he quickly went about putting a party together. They were going to have a a huge, gigantic barbecue, and he invited everybody in town to come. And so there was a mob of people for sure, but the mob wasn't angry. No, the, the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness of this father pressed the mob to be a mob of merriment, not a mob of meanness. Well, almost everybody was married. There was one that wasn't. See, the father, he had an older son. And the older son, he had been off in a far, far field, and he was taking care of the family business. And so he started making his way back home, and when he got within earshot, he heard loud music. And he started thinking, wait a minute, how can there be a party that big at my house with music that loud, and I don't know anything about it? And before he made his way up to the front porch, one of his workers came and and told him that that the party, the celebration, was because his little brother had come home. His little brother who had taken the family money and and run off to live an immoral life, and now there was a a party for him. And so how did the the older brother respond to me? What was his first reaction? I mean, surely he busted through the front door and went and and found his brother and and hugged him and then grabbed his father and they just had a a big family bear hug, right? No, his first reaction was anger. Anger. He sat out on the front porch and he pouted. He wouldn't even go inside. Now, that was a big deal back then because, see, this, this party wasn't really a party for his little brother. It was a party that was celebrating the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of his father. So in a sense, this party was like honoring the family name. But the older brother, he didn't care about the family name. He was not going to celebrate with his family. Now he was going to sit out on the porch and he was going to pout. His little brother publicly dishonored his father by taking the family money and running off to a foreign land and blowing all of it. But the older son publicly dishonored his father by sitting out on the front porch and pouting and not going in to celebrate with his family. So what happens next? Well, Jesus continues the story. Luke 15, verse 28. And his father came out and began pleading with him. 
So he's been pouting on the front porch long enough now that word has gotten inside the house to his father that he's out there. And if it got to his father, it got to everybody else too. So everybody knows that the older son is on the front porch pouting. Imagine that you are an older brother and that your little brother is getting married and he's asked you to be the best man. And it's wedding day. And everybody's inside the church but you. You are out front pouting. Why? Because you have a custom-made black Oxford tuxedo, but it's hanging in the closet back at the house because your little brother is making you wear a powder blue tuxedo with a white ruffled shirt because all the other groomsmen are wearing that. And you don't like it, so you're pouting. And I mean, everybody's inside. Everybody's in place. All the guests are there. All the songs have been played. Everybody's walked the aisle. Everybody's where they're supposed to be on stage. The pastor's there. The bride's there. The groom's there. Everybody's there. But there's this one gap, and everyone in the room knows who's supposed to be in that gap. You. The best man's supposed to go right there. And the pastor and your brother, they're, they're looking at that back door thinking, oh, he's, surely he's getting ready to come to senses and come on in so we can do this. But no, you're just going to sit out there and pout. And then the back doors of the church open, and you see your dad standing there. Your dad, he's done nothing wrong. He's just sitting up there minding his own business. He's not even in charge of the wedding. But he stands up in front of everyone, and he owns all of the shame of having to walk out to go get you. You're grown. (laughs) You know better. But you don't go. You just sit and pout. So the door opens and his face is is red. I mean red. There's steam coming out of his ear. He doesn't even open his mouth. He just says, get in this church right now. Actually, that's not what happens. See, you're being rude. You're being selfish. You're pouting because you're not getting your way. But your dad, now when he opens the door, all you see is a gracious smile. And he says, hey, buddy, look, man, I'm sorry about the tuxedo, man. I know you're bummed about that. And yes, you do look like the pom-pom of a cheerleader from the University of North Carolina. Yes, you do. You do. But hey, man, come on in and let's, let's do this. Let's, let's do the service. We can get to the reception. They have bacon-wrapped scallops. Come on, man. Get in here. Let's go. See, you were rude, and he's respecting. You are selfish, but he's being selfless. You're pouting, and he's just pleading. That's how Jesus tells the story. See, the father, he keeps going against the the cultural norms of the day. And he goes outside to plead with his son. The word plead here in the original language is, is connected to a word that we use for Holy Spirit. And so what the father's doing is he's coming outside to come alongside his son and say, hey, man, Please come on inside. Just, just come on inside and, 
and enjoy the company of your family and your friends. Your, your brother's home. Come on. But the brother, he just sat out there and pouted. And notice again what the father's doing. See, the father, he runs to pursue the prodigal son. And then he runs to pursue the pouting son. Or maybe another way to put that is, he runs to pursue the immoral prodigal son, and he runs to pursue the moral prodigal son. See, both of his boys, they were wayward. One was knee-deep in the sin of pleasure, and one was knee-deep in the sin of pride. But they were both on their own. Spurgeon said this, love it. I hardly know which to admire most, the love of the father when he fell upon the neck of the prodigal or the love of the father when he went out to talk with his elder son. He goes on, our God is very good to us when we give way to naughty tempers. If we begin to think that we are very holy people, that we have been long the servants of God, and that there ought to be some little fuss made over us, then our Father is very gentle, and He comes out and He entreats us. That's how God is. That's His character. That's His nature. So the Father goes out on the front porch. He graciously pleads for His Son to come back in to the celebration. And what does the son say in response? Listen, verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, look. That's how I said, look. There's not another way to to really look at that. See, he's not feeling bad over pouting. He's not feeling bad over being angry. He's ignoring and rejecting his father's gracious pleas. He feels no shame in the fact that he's being unloving to his father. He's being unloving to his brother. He feels no shame in the fact that he's dishonoring his family's name right now and he's dishonoring his family's guest. He doesn't care. How do we know? Because his first response is this curt, quick look. Look. In the South, this might be a moment when a father would say, Boy, don't sass me. (laughs) He doesn't care. He didn't care about how he's acting. He didn't care about what he's saying. I've sat in rooms at churches with, with teenagers, and they have spoken to their parents in rude, mean, unnecessary ways, and they don't feel bad. They don't care. I've sat in, in rooms at churches with grown, professing Christian adults sitting at a table where they speak rude and and mean in ways that are unnecessary. And they don't care. They don't feel any shame. They don't feel bad about it. He turns to his gracious father and rudely says, look at old man, here's the deal. So what's the deal? He continues. Look, for so many years I have been serving you. I want you to know this might be the saddest moment of the whole prodigal story. Of all that we see in the story, this might be the saddest moment. Why? Because the older son sees himself as a slave to his father instead of as a son. That's sad. It's not the father's fault. 
I mean, everything that we see of the Father in the story is that his go-to attitude was to be gracious and loving. His go-to attitude was to show grace, but the older son wants nothing to do with the Father's grace. Look, old man, I have been working like a dog for you for years. That's, that's his attitude toward his dad. John MacArthur says this, In the heart of this guy, he has seen this as a horrible, grit your teeth, grind your way through these years and years of slugging out your slavery to this guy so that when he finally dies, you can get what you're after. That's what we're seeing with just that one word almost. And then MacArthur says this, he was no different than the younger son. He wanted what he wanted. He just had a different way to get it. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that, that God is not standing over you with a clipboard waiting for you to fail, waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can make a list and check that list twice. That's not his character. Rather, God is standing over you right now with a clipboard, but it's turned sideways. And on that clipboard is a piece of paper and written in red ink, it says, I sent my son for you. That's what God does with his clipboard. God sent his son to rescue you from the penalty of sin so that your failures and your mistakes will not define who you are. So if you're in Christ, you are something. There's there's a way that you define who you are. What are you in Christ? 1 John 3, verse 1. Reading this from the Amplified Classic Translation. Love it. See what an incredible quality of love the Father has given and shown and bestowed on us that we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And so we are. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's who you are in Christ. You are not your failures. You are not your mistakes. You are not your sin. In Christ, you are a child of God. This older brother, he was so full of anger and bitterness. He was pouting so hard that he could not even see that his father dearly prized and dearly loved him. He couldn't see it. He was just a slave to the old man's rules. He's dishonoring his family by pouting on the porch. He's dishonoring his family's guests by pouting on the porch. He's dishonoring his father by ignoring his plea that he comes in. And now he's dishonoring his father with a smart mouth. And he ain't done. Listen to verse 29. And I have never neglected a command of yours. This would be the moment another southern phrase we would use is bless his heart. My wife and I went to a a marriage conference one time and the counseling professor that was giving the conference, he said something along these lines. He said, if you're ever in an argument with your spouse or with your parents or with your kids or whoever and you use the words never, ever, or always, you are lying. Lying. 
(laughs) All these years, he's seen his father's shepherding. He's seen his father's gracious pleas as commands from some man forcing him to work. He didn't see it. He didn't get it. That's, again, the sad part. He has his sight, but he has no vision. He doesn't realize he's completely wrong. He misses exactly what's going on. And now he's just lying. He's just lying because there's no way that he could perfectly always do everything his father asked him to do. It's just not possible. At the very least, he's neglecting his father now. He's sitting on the porch, pouting when his father's asking him to come in. So at least right now, that statement's not true. He's dishonoring his father in that moment. So he's angry, he's bitter, he's pouting, he's sassing, he's lying. Not a good look for him. But he's not done. Verse 29. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. I mean, we feel this, right? He's pulling a a Doug and Wendy Winer here, right? You never gave me a goat for my friends. He's grown. He's grown sitting on the porch, pouting and whining in detail. he's, He's throwing a temper tantrum. And, you know, it's easy for us to go, God, Weird that a, a grown man who was kind of in charge of the family business would sit on the porch and pout like this. It's easy for us to think that. But guess what? I don't mean to hurt your feelings. I do it. And so do you. We do it. We throw temper tantrums like this. I've seen it in person. I've seen it in emails. I've seen it in voicemail. Heard it in voicemails. Seen it in text messages. Read it in letters. I even heard it in a song one time. Yeah, temper tantrums. We, we know how to throw temper tantrums. We know how to pout when we don't get our way. But just a quick reminder that as professing believers, we have a different calling. This is what Paul said to the church at Philippi, Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. The word for innocent here. It means unmixed. I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in a culture and a society that loves to grumble about things. It's, it's kind of part of who we are. But as believers, we're called to not be mixed in with that. Now, look, we're not perfect, all right? We're all going to have our days where we grumble. We all are going to have our days where we whine. You know, we're going to have our days where we say, well, you didn't give a goat to me and my friends. We're, we're going to have those days, okay? Well, you may not say anything about a goat, but you know what I mean. Yeah. We're going to have these moments where we whine, but as believers, those things should be occasional. We should not be Doug and Wendy Weiner, you know? That's not who we should be known as. It's the people that just whine about everything. Look, sometimes things are going to be difficult, and we're going to have to creatively and and hopefully positively complain with certain situations to make sure some things get set right. But we shouldn't be whiners about everything. We shouldn't be known as whiners. The older son, man, he, he had been mixing up a boiling cauldron of whining and bitterness, and now he was pouring it all over the place on the front porch. 
this had been stewing for a while. How can we tell his bitterness is that deep? Listen to what he says next in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, <laughs> parents, ever pull that one? You look at your spouse, have you heard what your son did now? You know, not our son, your son. I mean, he can't even get himself to call him his brother. He won't even call him, you know, my brother. So what did his father's son do? Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Listen, I want to repeat what I said. By his character and his nature, God is not standing over you with a clipboard waiting for you to fail and make a mistake so he can make a list of it and check it twice. But self-righteous older brothers, they have clipboards. Self-righteous older sisters, they have clipboards. Self-righteous, immoral, rebellious prodigals, they have clipboards. Because what they do is they make a list of all your morality. (laughs) Self-righteous spouses and parents, they have clipboards. Self-righteous churchgoers and church members, they have clipboards. In fact, even self-righteous atheists have clipboards. See, the reality is we're all hypocrites at one time or another. None of us can fully honor everything that we believe 24 hours a day. And we might be quick to pull out our clipboards to start keeping track of what everybody else is and is not doing. And here's the thing with the word self-righteous. By literal connotation, it means that you think that you have the ability in you to make things right and keep things right with you in the universe. Or we would say from a gospel standpoint that you have the ability to make things right and keep things right with God. But here's the thing. That is a lie from the enemy of your soul. And Jesus calls that enemy the devil. Self-righteousness will kill your soul. Because to be self-righteous means you don't need grace. Or maybe at the very least that you really don't think grace is amazing. Paul Tripp writes this, you'll never celebrate grace as much as you should when you think that you're more righteous than you actually are. He says this, when I tell my stories, I become more the hero than I ever was. I look wiser in my narratives than I could have been. In my view of my history, my choices were better than what they actually were. (laughs) We've all done that. And he says this, often it isn't my sin that keeps me from coming to God. Sadly, I don't come to him because I don't think I need the grace that can be found only in him. So here's what the older brother's doing. In his angry, bitter rant, what he's saying to his father is, you're not the hero of this family. I mean, you, you gave all that money to your foolish son. What were you thinking? And my little brother, he's not the hero of this family because he he took all that money and he went and blew it. The older brother's saying, I am the good, moral, model citizen here. 
of this family. I'm the hero of this family. And that's why I can stand here on the front porch and I can look at you, dear old dad, and I can say this is not fair. 24 hours a day, the gospel of heaven is constantly saying this to all listening souls. Jesus was perfect and innocent, but he was cursed and crucified for your sin. Now that sounds not fair. But here's the thing. The perfect math of justice and the unfair, imperfect math of mercy, justice for sin, mercy for salvation, those perfect and unfair and imperfect maths, they all come together and they're calculated in Jesus Christ on the cross. And all of that math together produces this calculation and we call it grace. Grace. Justice is met. Mercy is given. All in Jesus. So what does the grace of Jesus do? In 1739, on the one-year anniversary of his salvation, a year after God had rescued and saved him from his sin, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn to commemorate his conversion. And I, I love this moment of imagining him just sitting down, overwhelmed that he was saved. And just sitting and, and looking out the window and going, oh, I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing of the grace of Jesus. I can't believe I'm saved. You don't have to raise your hands. But how many of you here in this room have been a Christian for more than 25 years? When's the last time we looked out the window and said, I can't believe I'm saved. I can't believe it. Oh, I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing that God has rescued me from my sin. But on that day, Wesley wrote these words about what the grace of Jesus does. This is what he said. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. For me. The older brother, he's on the porch, and he's saying, I'm not getting what I want. My personal preference is not being met. They're not doing it my way. And the father comes out and says, I love you. Come celebrate with us. The power of the gospel is that it keeps saying to us over and over again, the blood of Jesus, it avails to you. Meaning that the blood of Jesus benefits you. It benefits you. 
So praise God for the seemingly unfair salvation that comes through Jesus. Praise God that in our math there's no way it works, but in God's math it works. Praise God for the seemingly unfair, beautiful, reckless, loving grace of Jesus because by that grace we are set free. Free. Let us stay off the angry porch and let us love what it means to be free in Jesus.